Wild Precious Life is brought to you in part by Green Apple Books in San Francisco, connecting curious readers to great books since 1967. Browsing at Green Apple is a unique experience, from our handmade signs and book recommendations to the many nooks and crannies. You can both get lost in here and find serendipity. Our friendly, well-read employees also stand ready to help you in any way. For your next great read, stop by or go to greenapplebooks.com. And we're, bought, and we're brought to you by the Terratier Club, a holistic online community helping parents raise kids who will care for the earth and change the world. Go to theterratierclub.com to find parenting resources and a supportive online community today. As a child, I was terrified of the HBO music. If your family had the good cable in the 80s or 90s, you remember it. Terrifying. My childhood bedroom was above the living room, and when I heard that tune once, I knew the 8 o'clock movie was starting. If I heard it a second time, I knew the 10 o'clock movie was starting, and if I heard it again, it was midnight, and I was still awake. I've always been a bit of an insomniac. In elementary school, I went through a whole stage where I'd be worried if I knew everyone else in the family was asleep, and I wasn't. I'd get out of bed, wander into the hallway and call out, Psst! Are you guys awake? I knew they weren't, but somehow asking seemed more polite. Mom? Dad? Are you guys awake? Because I can't sleep. Inevitably, one of them would grumble and then give me some utterly useless advice. Go back to bed and count sheep. Say some Hail Marys. Hold your hand in the air until it falls asleep, and then the rest of your body will fall asleep too. Just read. I tried all of their ideas. Sheep were stupid and prayers were boring. And of course, holding my hand in the air didn't work at all. All of that simply reinforced the fact that I wasn't falling asleep. The only one that really stuck was reading. Occasionally, I'd read entire books while I laid in bed trying to fall back asleep. In high school, I did theater and played sports, so it wasn't unusual for me to be up late doing homework on school nights, 11 o'clock, midnight, 1 a.m., and, you know, up early in order to curl my hair and zip to school before that 7 a.m. bell. Like most teenagers, I tried to make up that sleep on the weekends, drowsing until 11 or even noon. College was more of the same and even a little worse. Nothing fun even started until like 11 p.m. on campus, and my work shift making coffee at the hospital started at 4.45. It wasn't unusual for me to get by on, you know, five hours of sleep, sometimes less. On the weekends, I would often sleep past lunch. So when I had kids, I figured all my college all-nighters, those had prepared me for sleepless nights with babies. But I was utterly utterly mistaken. I have memories of being so exhausted during those middle-of-the-night wake-ups that I simply sat on the edge of the bed, unable to figure out whether I was getting up to feed the baby or going back to sleep because I'd already fed her. Now that my oldest daughter is 18, I've realized that it's been decades. In this episode, I, I guess two decades, but if I'm being honest, it's probably been most of my life that I've been sleeping poorly. So I was skeptical, extremely skeptical about the book I read for this conversation, The Sleep Prescription, Seven Days to Unlocking Your Best Rest. But today's guest, Dr. Eric Prather, makes an incredible case for why we should all be getting better sleep. Sleep boosts the immune system, he writes. It regulates metabolism, it makes you happier. It makes you a better, more empathic partner and a more patient parent. It can improve your productivity and creativity at work. 
and boost your energy so you can actually squeeze in that extra or first workout during the week. It sharpens the mind and can actually clear toxins out of the brain that build up over time, including those thought to play a role in neurodegenerative diseases. In research findings, Dr. Prather points out that people who get less than six hours of sleep were four times as susceptible to the cold virus. And I hate to break to you folks, you're not getting any younger. Neither am I. And it turns out that rest, more fortifying and healing rest, is not as hard as my life has led me to believe. For most of us, improved sleep is merely a few better practices away. Since I read this book and started implementing Dr. Prather's simple techniques, I'm sleeping better. I'm no longer afraid of the HBO music. Okay, to be fair, I got over that years ago, but now, most nights, I am sleeping straight through. That's right. Not waking up to haunt the house or go to the bathroom multiple times, just sleeping through the night. Better sleep hasn't made me look younger yet. My hair is still turning gray, and I still have these lines on my forehead that I wish were from laughing too much, but I think are probably from frowning. But you know what? I feel better. Some days I even feel rested. If you know you need more sleep, I urge you to stick around for this conversation. My guest today is Dr. Eric Prather, a professor of psychology and behavioral sciences at the University of California, San Francisco, where he co-directs the Aging, Metabolism, and Emotions Center. He is also a licensed clinical psychologist who helps lead the UCSF Insomnia Clinic, where he practices cognitive behavioral therapy to treat patients with insomnia. He also directs a robust research program focused on the causes and consequences of insufficient sleep. A self-proclaimed sleep evangelist, Dr. Prather has dedicated his career to raising awareness about the importance of sleep health and advocating for sleep opportunity as a basic human right. Dr. Eric Prather, welcome to Wild Precious Life. Thank you for having me. So you're the author of The Sleep Prescription, Seven Days to Unlocking Your Best Rest. My oldest daughter is 18, so between pregnancy and children, I haven't slept well in about two decades. I was incredibly skeptical that your teeny tiny little book could even help me. I am naturally a night owl, though every child in my life seems to wake up unnecessarily early. Uh, So I have been in sleep trouble for years. I brought my notes today. I have my sleep diary. My opportunity and efficiency numbers are calculated down to the minutes and percentages. So I'm ready for this conversation. But I think I might be too ready. So before we dive in, why don't we listen to your sleep story? How did you come to be interested in the science of sleep? I'm a clinical health psychologist. And uh, in my like graduate training, I went to the University of Pittsburgh And uh, it was really to study stress and how it affects the immune system. Um, I got trained in this kind of like subfield called psychoneuroimmunology, which is just kind of trying to understand the behaviors and and how our mind impacts our immune system. Um, And the project that I was working on uh, that I came into graduate school to work on was about kind of things that predict who does well and who does poorly to the um, hepatitis B vaccination series. And so, um, and we were, you know, bringing people into the lab and stressing them out and, you know, drawing their blood and seeing what happens and trying to understand the mechanisms, all this like really, you know, cool and fun stuff to do. Uh, But then I, you know, I needed to figure out kind of what, where was my part in this? And um, I had been reading in the you know, the larger literature around sleep. Turns out the University of Pittsburgh has a really big sleep group. And so I got to, you know, like a research sleep group. And so I got to got some exposure to that. And I really began to see that, um, you know, the same changes that we see in the immune system when we stress people out, you see very similar patterns when you deprive them of sleep, right? So you see sleep-deprived people, draw their blood, get all these changes in their immune system. Uh, and it was kind of like, you know, fairly obvious that like, obvi- you know, stress and sleep are so intimately related. 
Um, when we have a bad night of sleep, we're more sensitive to stress. When we have lots of stressors, particularly close to bedtime, it affects our ability to sleep. And and But yet, kind of these fields were really kind of siloed, like people just studied stress and, and daytime things, and then some people just studied sleep and got into the brain to see what was, you know, the EEG waves and all this kind of stuff. But, you know, it seemed like there was a place for trying to marry these two things. And so that, that's kind of how I got started. And then um, and then it it turned out, you know, sometimes it's like, you know, many people who do their dissertations, it just like doesn't work out, right? They do all the studying, like they and they find out, like, look, what I thought was true in the world is not true, and you know, bummer. <laughs> um, mine actually was really successful. So you know, we found that people who got less sleep were, um, you know, substantially poorer in responding to the hepatitis E vaccination series. And we've like now gone on and kind of studied this in other vaccines. And there's just such a clear picture there. And so that that certainly kind of propelled me forward and kind of doing the, the research side of things. But then as a clinical psychologist, you also have to do a like a one-year internship just doing clinical work and and kind of like a residency for, for medical school. And uh, and so I did this at Duke University uh, Medical Ooh, Center. Go Blue Devils. <laughs> and so uh, and I happened to be able to work with kind of one of the pioneers in um, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, this guy, Jack Edinger. And so I got to do that training and I got to see firsthand, like if you give someone their sleep back, it it has incredible spillover effects. And I was hooked. I was like, if I ever do clinical work, which I wasn't sure I was going to do at the time, like I was just all research all the time at that at that time in my life. I was like, I'm going to do this. I, you know, this makes a meaningful impact. And like, sleep is such an interesting like entry point into someone's lives. Like, everyone wants to talk about their sleep, right? Not everyone wants to talk about their anxiety or their depression, but they'll talk about their sleep. And so, it might be a really impactful leverage point to actually make you know all of these sustained changes in people's well-being, their mental health, and as we found, kind of their physical health. Yeah, no, 100%. I I realized at the beginning of your book that I had never thought much about um what it is our bodies do when we sleep. I know we generally rest, and I know my body forgets everything it was supposed to do the next day. But but what else is our body doing when it sleeps? Our brain is very active when we're sleeping, and it's doing a lot of important things. So, of course, there's the restoration, and we're learning more about how, you know, um you know, sleeping may be critical for helping your brain clear out metabolites that build up throughout the day, right? Um, but also it has, you know, profound impact on your immune system, your metabolism, you know, your blood pressure drops, your your heart rate variability kind of gets enhanced. Um, you know, there's kind of kind of well-documented impacts of sleep on memory consolidation and learning, um, you know, from an emotional perspective, there's, you know, it seems that sleep is playing an important role in kind of helping to kind of disentangle kind of the facts and the emotions that go with those facts that happen throughout the day. So if you think about kind of emotional memory, I guess, in that case, that, you know, when you have, um, say, a traumatic event or, or any kind of emotionally laden event um, you want to remember the factual experience, but you don't want to relive the emotions every time that's brought back up. And so there's kind of theories around how sleep might play an important role in kind of breaking that relationship. Um, and, you know, I mean, I think that's just scratching the surface of like what's going on when we're sleeping. Um, you know, there are certainly kind of up upticks in kind of different hormonal pathways, right? So like growth hormone is released when we sleep. Um, all of these things that are you know, probably serve a really critical function that don't necessarily happen um, when we're awake. Um, you know, I, I think one of the complications is that, you know, in addition to what sleep does, also there's kind of the role of our circadian rhythm, right? And so they do these studies where, you know, they'll, they'll deprive people of sleep and you'll still see these changes even when people aren't sleeping, which suggests that those are kind of driven by the circadian rhythm. Um, but there are other things that don't and what seem to be more specific to sleep. And so, you know, I think that the research enterprise around sleep is still kind of chugging along and understanding those things. But, you know, it's certainly there are kind of a, a laundry list of uh, impacts that sleep plays for our health. Sure, sure. I think you say in your book that sleep is medicine. I'd never heard that before, but it makes such sense. If you're talking about immune systems, you're talking about, I don't know, 
parenting patiently if you're talking about the desire to exercise, sleep is medicine for our bodies. And it made me wonder if our bodies know they need the medicine and our bodies know how to sleep and we we all want rest, then, of course, why do so many of us have so much trouble sleeping? You know, one of the things that I try to impart to the patients that we see at our, our clinic here at the University of California, San Francisco, are is that, like, we're kind of built for sleep, right? Um, it's so biologically embedded. I mean, it's conserved across species. Every species that we study does something that looks like sleep or rest. Um, and then it's been conserved across millennia. And so it's really so fundamental to our being. With insomnia, it's, it's really this kind of fear system that gets engaged, right? People begin to see sleep as kind of unpredictable. They're chasing it instead of letting it come to you. You know, with the best intentions, kind of make changes to our behavior because we're so desperate for sleep to work. Um, but sleep is not something that we make happen. Sleep is something that comes to us. It kind of washes over us. Um, but in the service of trying to kind of fix this problem, because we're doers, um, you know, it actually undermines how sleep works naturally. And so, you know, what a lot of my job is in the clinical space is kind of identifying those barriers and kind of putting people back in a place where they they don't think about it, right? Like, like sleep is kind of the absence of doing. And so the more effort that you're putting into trying to make it happen, especially in the moment, it's actually kind of working against you. And that's a, that's a hard thing to get people to, to, to shift on because they're set, you know, and it's distressing, right? Like it's, people are desperate, right? I mean, I have people all the time say things that like, you know, I was, I was feeling really sleepy. And then as I got closer to bedtime, I got more and more anxious, right? Because I knew what I was facing. Like I knew I was so scared it was going to be one of those nights, right? And like that, you know, that is that is something that, you know, you know, I, I don't wish on anybody, but there are also ways in which we can, um, you know, make some behavioral changes to uh, reduce the likelihood that that it will be one of those nights. You can't just like try really hard to sleep right now. That that's not the way to to get yourself to sleep by like holding on tighter and I'm going to do it. Here we go. Like that actually is working right, against right. you. Like the white knuckle approach <laughs> is not, not advised. It's not working hard enough. Um, <laughs> yeah. So before we talk about the individual need to sleep, I just want to say that I really, really appreciated that you include in this book, although it is, you know, strategies, like you said, behavioral strategies for people to sleep. I like that you also say that we often think of sleep as an individualized issue, but it's also a societal concern. If you live in an unsafe neighborhood, you may be hypervigilant. You might not be sleeping well because of noise pollution or because it's you want to protect your kids and you want to feel safe. I'm just quoting you here. You said sufficient and restorative sleep is not evenly distributed across populations. There are clear sleep Inequities on average, black folks and low individual or low income individuals report shorter, less restorative sleep than folks in other racial demographics. And you said sleep is a vital social justice issue. I really appreciated you mentioning that. And I don't know. I'm not in the sleep psychology realm. I've never heard anyone say that before. I really appreciated your framing there. Yeah, thanks. I mean, you know, uh, and 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 if if people haven't read it, uh, Trisha Hersey's "Rest Is Resistance" is like a great kind of uh, pretty popular book a- around this topic, and it, you know it it really it, it's striking. You know the disparities are striking, um, and it it really like from our research perspective, you know, might help us understand kind of some of these other racial disparities in health right? Like cardiovascular disease. Like we know that insufficient sleep is a, you know, a significant risk factor for hypertension, for other, you know, the development of atherosclerosis. Um, And, uh, you know, it's possible that, you know, it's these racial disparities in sleep that are kind of mapping onto this that are potentially driving this. And so, you know, but then, you know, what, what, creates these disparities. And they're certainly kind of at the individual level, you know, perhaps, you know, if someone walks around in a society where they're discriminated against on the regular, right, like that's going to generate some kind of hypervigilance. 
but the individual, of course, is like, you know, um, nested within families, within communities. Um, you know, if you, uh, you know, live in a, in a home that, um, you know, there's, there's violence outside or there's light pollution or noise, pollu you're near, you're near a, a throughway or a, a freeway, um, you know, that might impact your sleep. If you, um, if there's crowding within kind of the home that you live, right? Like you're sharing the bed with three other people, that's going to affect your sleep. Um, and, and you can just kind of begin to build the, the, the kind of the kind of nesting doll of like what it looks like. Um, and it, all the way up to the societal level, right? Like policies around kind of where people can live, kind of affordable housing, um, you know, issues around who are the people that, that have jobs where they don't have control of their time or their schedule or have to make excess commutes because they have to live way out to be able to afford where they live and then ultimately have to get up at four or three in the morning to, to drive into work. All of those things, those systemic factors kind of trickle down to impact someone's ability or their opportunity for sleep. I definitely do see kind of sleep health as a and sleep opportunity as, as, as something that's like worth speaking up for from like a social justice perspective. And I think, um, and, and I, I will say that there is, you know, a fairly growing sector of like the sleep medicine community that is, is moving in that direction. And it's really exciting. Yeah. I mean, you talk about how police and judges make worse decisions when they sleep poorly. As a policeman, if I've slept poorly, I'm going to be treating my suspects with more anger. If I'm a judge, I'm more likely to dole out a longer sentence. So I, I really appreciated thinking about sleep on a communal level and what individuals that are part of groups, um, if they just, if we mandated or if we if we made things better for more sleep, I was getting up with my daughter in the six o'clock hour. And again, she's 18. She's a senior in high school. She'd like to get up at noon. We know this about, about <laughs> seniors in high yeah. school. We know this about high school kids. And yet we keep putting them on buses at, at seven o'clock in the morning. So anyway, I was all on board to talk about my own lousy sleep from a uh, from an individual and, and a, a communal level. And I looked to the first of your recommendations and then I was out because wake up <laughs> at the same time every day, excuse me, on the weekends, on the holidays, on that one Saturday when we don't have a piano recital or soccer, you're telling me I've got to get out at the out of bed at the ass crack of dawn on a Saturday? I say, sir, you're... You're nuts. So uh, why? Why is it so important that I we should wake up at the same time every morning? So this may surprise you. You're not the first person <laughs> who has had this reaction. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, so so and I, and I always kind of, you know, frame it in like, look, like I'm not I'm not the enemy. Like I'm not I'm I'm not. <laughs> Aren't you, though? I, 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 a little bit, a little bit. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, the point of getting up at, you know, the same time, seven days a week is to take advantage and kind of reintegrate, uh, kind of one of the key regulate regulators of our sleep, which is our internal clock, right? So our circadian rhythm, our internal clock, um, is, plays an important role in ensuring that we get adequate and restorative sleep. Um, and so by kind of having an anchor point at which when you get up, um, that helps keep the body kind of in better timing. It turns out that like our body and our mind, our brain, like just crave predictability. Like your brain, our brains are just kind of predicting machines, right? They're like bringing in information and there's so much, they're, they're trying to make kind of best guesses about what's gonna happen next. So the more predictable things can be in our environment, just the better the predictions are and kind of the more efficiently things work. Um, the other thing that's important about waking up at the same time is that it sets the beginning of the other clear regulatory process in our sleep, which is called our homeostatic sleep drive. And I talk about it like it's a balloon that like builds up with sleepiness throughout the day, the longer we're awake. Um, and so, you know, in the best case, you wake up and your balloon is flat, you go throughout the day and it builds up and then, you know, it gets to like an optimal amount and you feel sleepiness cues, you want to go to bed, you go to sleep and it kind of drains out until the next day. And so, but if you kind of shift your timing and when you wake up, it actually shifts the amount of time it takes for your balloon to fill up. Also, 
when you shift your time by hours or two hours, it actually induces in your body, though you may not perceive it this way, as um, kind of a, a jet lag, right? Like you're moving time zones um, despite kind of like not getting any of the benefits of traveling. Um, and so you're still stuck in your house in your life, but now you're off by a couple hours. And so, you know, all of those things could potentially be problematic if you have sleep problems. The other thing that I, I want to say is that, and, and it's kind of uh, about you know, related to what we've talked about in the beginning, that, you know, some people will say, well, you know, yes, I've heard I'm supposed to keep a, a, a same wake time and keep a bedtime the same all the time too. And, and I just, you know, I frame it in that like, if someone has sleep problems, actually setting a bedtime that's standard for them can actually be really distressing. So imagine you have insomnia, your sleep doctor's like, okay, well, you got to be in bed by 10. And like, you know, 945 rolls around and you're like, not sleepy. You're not, you know that you're not sleeping. You're like, oh my God, the sleep doctor said I need to go to bed. Like now I need to get in bed and now you're getting in bed and you're kind of like starting to spin out. Um, and, 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 but we, and, bec- and we can't control when we get sleepy or when we fall asleep. Like our, our sleep drive does that. Our circadian rhythm does that. The energy that we use throughout the day does that. Um, but we can control when we wake up. And so focusing on this anchor thing that we can do will kind of set in motion um, a bunch of other things that we can layer on to increase the likelihood that we'll have a good night's sleep. Now, we can never ensure that tonight's sleep is going to be great. But what we can do is kind of put things in place to increase the chances that we'll have a good night's sleep. And on average, our sleep will improve over time. Yeah. So I was just going to skip that first recommendation. And just pretend I didn't do it. I was because it was a long holiday weekend, and I was doing the seven days ahead of this. And I thought I get I'm it. just gonna. I get it. But I set my stupid alarm anyway for seven oh one because I felt like that one minute was important. And um, yeah, because my worst night of sleep is typically Sunday night, and I've never understood it before. I've always thought, oh, it's a stressful work week. My brain just won't shut off. I'm getting ready for Monday, and it's not unusual for me to be up until one or two in the morning on Sunday night, and then I'm getting up for the work week. And I've just always assumed it was just, you know, Mondays are tough. But I realized that that jet lag thing for me is real because I would often sleep in on Saturday or Sunday, and then my body just wasn't ready to go to bed at its normal time. Um, I was so angry at you that that stupid wake-up works. It really does. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wasn't sure where this was going. I'm going... It's good advice. <laughs> oh. So thank you. Yeah, you heard it here, guys. Oh, it's so painful though that, that that waking up uh, for no reason whatsoever. But but there was this gift that um what is it called the time windfall of suddenly I had hours before the kids even woke up and then I got back some of my day to do some of the things that I too often do at night, which interrupts my sleep. You you had this phrase. I, I actually didn't know this phrase. I think it's pretty common in, in your trade, but you talk about practicing good sleep hygiene. Um, I didn't actually know what that phrase meant. When when I read some of the uh, ideas in the book, they they made sense. Like, don't, don't have your television on loud in your lap, in your bed. <laughs> it's not ideal. But um, what's some what's some other sleep hygiene and why is it so important? Yeah. The, I mean, the so the sleep hygiene things are kind of like a lot of them are the things that we've that make a lot of common sense and that we've heard about. But, you know, you can make all these behavioral strategies that are maybe a little bit more uh, novel. But if you're consuming, you know, an espresso right before bed, it's like it's not going to matter. Like, right. And so, um, you know, I think there's first the things during the day that are around substances. So, um, you know, limiting caffeine intake, ideally not after lunch, um, you know, limiting alcohol consumption too close to bedtime, a couple hours before bedtime is, is and, and making sure that it's not um, excessive because that can certainly have an impact on your sleep architecture and the restoration, restorative quality of your sleep. Um, you know, a lot of things focused on the bedroom and making the bed kind of a shrine to sleep, right? Um, and, you know, so we say, you know, only sleep and sex, you know, everything else out of the bed. One of the things that's so critical for our ability to sleep well is to have this um, kind of conditioned response to the bed, bed, meaning that when we get in bed, it actually tells our body that it's time to go to sleep and actually brings on the feeling of sleepiness. 
for people who don't have sleep problems, they get in bed. They might feel sleepy before they get in bed, but they get in bed and it's like a hammer coming down on them. That's like, oh, and and no one none, no one really knows why that happens. It's like it's just, you know, but it's because there's been so many nights of being sleepy, getting in bed and falling asleep that it's created this conditioned response. Um, and then the opposite is true when people have bad nights of sleep, right? They spend a lot of time tossing and turning, um, kind of struggling and being frustrated. And over time, that fractures that relationship. And actually, it becomes that it's not just that you're anxious. It's like you're in bed and the bed itself like triggers that in you. And, and, and that's really kind of at the, the foundation of, of how insomnia works. Back to the sleep hygiene things, you know, within the bedroom, you know, keeping the bedroom dark, um, you know, keeping it quiet, you know, um, keeping it cool. So it turns out that our, our body, our core body temperature has to drop as we as we go throughout the night. And so, you know, a, a cooler temperature tends to help with that. So, you know, between 64 and 68 probably is like a Fahrenheit. Uh, and then, you know, I, I, I yeah, I think those are like the, the basic sleep hygiene exercise is another one. I mean, but that, that kind of has like a bimodal experience, like some people can exercise right before bedtime and just be exhausted and then have like a really restorative night of sleep where for others it's very activating. Um, and so that's that's something that you can do a little uh, kind of N of one experiment, become your own sleep scientist and begin to, to see what works for you. But in general, you know, be- exercise not too close to bedtime, you know, limit the alcohol, limit the substances that keep you awake um, and then kind of keep the bed a, a shrine and uh, an environment that is that is a uh, facilitate sleep. Yeah, these were good things I thought I was doing and then I was sort of checking them off and and I, and I I dumped out a cup of coffee, a beautiful cup of coffee at like 3:30 last week that I had barely drunk and I was like, Gah! but I often drink coffee too late in the day. I I know that, uh, but it, it does affect it does affect my sleep. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. When I get to bedtime and I'm go, go, go all day, one of your strategies was about like taking breaks during the day. And I think I had always thought like if you go hard all day, then you'll just like collapse into sleep. But I, it turned out that one of your suggestions was like, you know, if you're forced to take breaks during the day, you're you're actually going to settle into rest more be- better, I guess. I, I had a really, really hard time, even harder than the the morning wake up was taking breaks. But how does taking breaks across the course of a day actually help us sleep? Yeah, right. So so I recommend kind of taking these like micro breaks. Um, and I mean, I, I think it's it it's like my, my colleague, I, I run a lab here with this woman, um, Alyssa Eppel, and she wrote The Stress Prescription, which is like, the, uh, like it goes along with the sleep prescription. This oh, book. Oh, right? I, like I know that one too. I didn't realize you guys were were partners in a lab. Okay, yeah. great. Yeah, yeah. So we co-direct a center here, and and uh, and and we were we just did a an event where we both talked about our books, and it was just they were just it just struck me at like how well how compatible they were, um, and you know because it it's really like our sleep. Um, one of the things that that gets in the way is exactly what you're saying. It's like the the things that build up throughout the day, and you know, end up kind of trickling and in, seeping into our subconsciousness, and kind of messing around with our sleep. Right? Like we wake up because we wake up throughout the night, and a lot of them we don't even remember. But when people have a lot of stress on board, it like when you do have those wake ups, it can kind of kick on board. Like your brain's like ready. It's like oh, awake, boom. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about this thing you should have done better. Or this thing you have to do tomorrow, um, and and so one of the strategies is to really be preventative, right? To really give yourself some grace and some restoration throughout the day, right? Some kindness for yourself, um, and that is kind of for me what the micro breaks are about. 
It's like breaking up the day to give yourself uh, an ability to kind of do a little bit recharging of that battery. Like we want to try to get out in front of it, right? We want to do things during our waking hours that will make it easier for us to let go at night. Kind of finding these micro breaks, these times in which you can say go outside or do a meditation or just have some time to yourself where you're not kind of engaged with the world, the things that you're kind of the the, the hamster wheel that you're on will, uh, you know, ideally put you in a better space for when bedtime comes. Um, you know, it's interesting kind of to hear kind of your story because because you, you you said that you're a night owl, right? And and what are the that's that's actually a, a challenge that comes up fairly often with people that have insomnia is that that you know it's it's not only that you kind of want to go to sleep, but it's like and oftentimes, especially when people are kids, but it, it you know it goes throughout adulthood. Um, you know, the world is often not set up for night owls, right? And so there's this like extra pressure to fall asleep and you're kind of fighting against your biological preference to be awake, right? And that's, that's a real challenge. And, and, it, and it, it's like a next level of kind of dealing with um, insomnia is this like how much of it is that, you know, you're anxious about being asleep, going to sleep versus like your body's just like not ready to go to sleep. And, and like, how, how do you know those things? And, uh, and so, you know, I, I just wanted to mention that because it's 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 a little, it like makes it a little bit more complicated and just like a little a little harder to to manage. Um, and so I, I I definitely empathize with that. Well, I appreciated the yes, the world is not built for night owls except for college. College I did well because uh, <laughs> college is built for night owls, but not not the rest of the world. No, I my natural sleep would be like two to ten, um, if that. Yeah. But I did I did like this idea of forcing myself to take breaks. So instead of trying to like wear myself out from the day, this idea of of taking some practice and some moments just to like practice a pause. And you would actually think that meditating for five minutes would make you more tired. But for some reason, meditating for five minutes and by meditating, I mean, went to YouTube, typed up stupid five minute meditation and like listen to the guy or the gal just like I don't know how to meditate but but I did it and it's funny that doing this this quick break behind my computer um it did actually both I don't know I was sticking my head in the freezer and just like what am I doing because that was another of your (laughs) suggestions you nut I'm like this is the weirdest Uh. thing I've ever done but that also worked that these little breaks actually they they both woke me up during that afternoon lag time that I have, and then they somehow made it so that I can let go a little bit better, um, better at night. Um, but you mentioning the night owl thing made me think about partnered sleep. That you know, I, I love I love my husband, but I sometimes hearken back to those TV sets from like the nineteen fifties when. Lucille Ball and and her husband Ben Ricky slept in separate beds, you know, because it turns out if you're partnered, you may not have the same sleep needs. You know, my my partner is an early bird and I'm a night owl. We are compatible in lots of ways, but sleep ain't one of them. And so it took a long time for me to realize that if we went to bed at the exact same time, I am I'm I'm awake for two hours. He's out. But if we go to bed at 10, I'm awake. Um but you, I don't know. You had some interesting strategies for you know how how can partners get better sleep. Together? Well, I mean, I, I think you know your experience is is uh, kind of in line with I think many 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 couples, right? I mean, like it turns out that like sleeping preferences is not high on most people's list in like what they want in a partner, right? Like it's like usually it's like oh dang, I didn't even know <laughs> didn't even know this was gonna be different. Why would it be different? Uh, and, 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 you know, and, and I think it also changes over time. I think that in some ways, the appreciation of the importance of sleep that I think there is a, a bit of a, you know, a collective uh, culture shift around kind of the importance of sleep. And my hope is that there will be kind of less um, kind of negative or like stigma around um, kind of not sleeping in the same bed. Um, because that's really what keeps this kind of going is this idea that like when people sleep in separate beds or in separate rooms, that it's it's a symptom of a poor relationship. 
Um, but, you know, there's many uh, scenarios where that makes tons of sense. I mean, you know, I think, um, you know, some bed partners have different schedules, like you're saying. Some people, um, you know, are like really restless when they sleep, um, you know, maybe have a sleep disorder on board, like obstructive sleep apnea. And, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, couples specifically having conversations about what they need around their sleep um, can be, you know, really helpful and, and kind of a, you know, maybe even build further intimacy um, around, because um, it's something that we don't always talk about. Um, you know, and, and I think it has, you know, important uh, ramifications just for relationships. I mean, we know that when even one, if one bed partner uh, gets a poor night of sleep, um, and then they're in like a, put in a conflict task, uh, the, the, the person that um, got the bad night of sleep just has a really hard time taking the other person's perspective, right? We become kind of more self-focused, um, less empathetic. And, you know, I, I always say that, like, if, you know, people get the sleep they need, I mean, we're just kind of better versions of ourselves. We're kind of our best selves, right? Like, we're more empathetic. We're better parents. We're better partners. We're more productive. We're more creative. Um, and we have kind of better... Uh, capacity to deal with kind of the stressors, whether it be in our relationship or at our job or in traffic or with technology issues, whatever. Um, it, it really is kind of the glue that holds our life together. Um, and, uh, you know, we spend so much time with our, with our partners. And so I think, you know, we should take the, the couple's sleep health really seriously. I appreciate what you said about that cyclical, cyclical nature of things because I always think about how, yeah, crummy sleep influences my day. Sure, sure. I didn't sleep last night, so I'm grumpy today. Or maybe I had a hard time falling asleep, so I snoozed and missed my alarm, and then I missed my morning workout. Like, I've understood that part. But that the rest of the cycle, I hadn't thought about, like, if I sleep poorly, I am more likely to eat poorly. But then when I eat poorly, I'm probably more likely to sleep poorly. If I'm worried and stressed out, yes, it might make it harder to sleep, but I hadn't thought about how crummy sleep is actually make me more prone. It's going to make me more prone to worry the next the next day. That I hadn't completed the cycle on that. That I would say I felt a little more even-tempered this week doing my 701 wake-up on the holiday weekend, <laughs> being angry with you, but also thinking, you know what? I, I had to fly. I had to fly over the weekend. And usually I'm a little stressed flying because I'm I'm running late and, and I'm doing what if scenarios. But I was kind of remarking on the p- fact that I just sort of rolled with it. It was snowing. And I just I, I and that's not to say that it's all my my sleep. But but I'm someone with I, I when I calculated, I'm in, you know, in the 60s or 70s usually for my um my my sleep efficiency. That's kind of where I, I tended to land. But just by doing that same wake up, I did find myself kind of winding down into sleep. Not not always, but with a little bit more ease. Because I also, I'm not going to go over all the, you say seven days to unlocking your best rest, and you've kind of got seven big strategies. I'm not going to go over all of them. Folks should definitely buy the book. But, but one of them talks about the wind down and I was looking at I was looking at the things I usually do before bed. I usually check my email and scroll social media and maybe have a drink and maybe watch some TV. And I was going over your list. It's like just don't scroll social media and don't don't do your work emails and maybe don't have a drink before bed. So I was guilty of having done all the things you said not to do in what I considered to be my um, my wind down. <laughs> So I, I, at the same time that I was grousing about your strategies, I was thinking, I wow, I hadn't thought about how in aggregate all of those do actually affect not just my sleep today, but my day tomorrow. Yeah, totally. I always try to close with just a few questions that are tangential to the book, but also, you know, we get to meet the the, the person behind the, the book. So I, these are just little kind of fun questions, if you don't mind. Yeah. Uh, just these are multiple choice. So pick one. Uh, mountains or beach? Oh, beach uh dogs or cats you would think it would be obvious i don't know uh like my my kids want a dog so bad but i'm like man a cat would be so much easier (laughs) um 
but maybe not as loving. I don't know. I guess dog. Um, coffee or tea? Coffee. What's your caffeine cutoff personally? I want to say like two o'clock. Gotcha. Uh, early bird or night owl for you? Which are you? Early bird, for sure. By nature or just by science? By nature. By nature. I, I love a good sunrise. Oh, I have almost never seen the sunrise. <laughs> I saw <laughs> Except one. when you stayed up all night. I saw one in Mexico not long ago. I'm like, huh. <laughs> That looks a lot like that looks a lot like the sunset. Only I think the sun. It was it was very funny. I was like, I don't know that I've ever seen it from this angle before. <laughs> um, if you're feeling low energy in the middle of the day, are you more likely to um, go for a brisk walk or stick your head in the freezer? Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, uh, I I I I have a. I, I'm more prone to go outside. Uh, we actually, I mean, in my office building here, uh, we're really near a like a cove in in kind of the Mission Bay area of San Francisco. So there's like this really nice walk. You can just like walk to this little beach thing and and walk. It's like a loop I do. So that that's what I tend to do. Um, the freezer is always available, but it's like a communal free- freezer. And so I don't know. I mean, they would understand if I did it, but you know, <laughs> I don't want other people starting to use the freezer that way. <laughs> Nice. Um, are you a risk taker or are you the person who always knows where the band-aids are? I'm I'm probably the latter. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I like to be prepared in that way. Or I strive to be. Um also I, you know, you know, am and the one to prone to get hurt, possibly. So it's good to be have those have those things at the ready. That that's uh yeah, you gotta be prepared. All right, this is a fill in the blank. If I wasn't working as a professor who leads the University of California's San Francisco Insomnia Clinic, I would be a gosh, you know, <laughs> I I don't know. I mean I think I think being here in San Francisco, I'm always like I you know, there's always this pull towards kind of doing something like a startup or like a sleep tech or something like that. That could be just be fun as an experience. I don't think I would like it. And I don't think I'm built for it. But um, yeah, I, don't, I mean, I, I've only done this job. Like this is the only job I've ever had. So it's like really hard to imagine doing something different than this. Um, I, some, I, I thought even with this book, I thought like maybe I'll really just like just do public speaking like, I'll just like, this will be like, this is my chance to begin to just like, because I, I really like talking about this and I'm really passionate about like communicating this importance. And there's just so many levels in which you can engage with the public. Um, but uh, there's also like, as you, I'm sure you know, kind of the, like the branding that has to go on with this kind of thing. Like I'm also not well suited to, I think, like I realized that, you know, people that are kind of like constantly tweeting about themselves or kind of creating information about themselves. It's just like it doesn't feel great for me. So it's like I maybe I'm not built for it. I don't know. But, um, you know, it's, it, it, you know, I don't know. That was kind of a no, that's gr- that's great. Roxanne Gay's partner, <laughs> Roxanne Gay's partner, Debbie Millman, had an article out just recently about um, – the self brand or like all that, all the nonsense of like yourself as a brand and, and why it's actually kind of runs counter to yourself as a human. So I think sometimes, uh, and a version of that is, is, is pretty healthy. Yeah. Yeah. And well, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's like the, it's like the, the look at me culture, I guess is like, what is, what is, who are, how does that work? Who are the, like, where is that? Like, is, how's that driven from? Like, what is, you know, obviously people can make a good living off of it, but I think most people don't. And it's just, it seems really hard. I think it might mess with your sleep. Yeah. Yeah. Possibly. What doesn't? Um, yeah. No kidding. Um, <laughs> do you have a favorite ice cream or a favorite sweet? Oh, I, you know, I'm, I'm prone to chocolate is like probably my like favorite sweet that I go to. Um, yeah. How about a favorite movie or television show you're binging? Uh, so as, as, uh, as noted in this book, I like watch the office all the time. I don't know why that's like the show that I've been, I'm my wife and I were watching white Lotus right now. Um, which is, has been pretty good. I don't know. Like we, we tend to kind of like run through lots of different shows. So if you have any recommendations, I'm all about it. <laughs> yeah. And then with my kids, we watch like, basically we watch like all the Marvel movies over and over and over. That's like, that's my life. My kids just want to do that too. And a, a couple of them are rated R, but they figured out that I didn't know which ones those were. Yeah. 
until we, you know, so I, for me, the Marvel, with apologies to Marvel, they were all just sort of interchangeable. It's like, which, you know, cue it up. But every once in a while, I guess there's one that they know is rated R, but they don't think that I know. So we'll be halfway through that. I'm like, whoa, whoa. Hey, guys, what are we watching? Yeah. <laughs> and we, we've sometimes yeah. just plowed through them anyway. But, I, you know, <laughs> <laughs> hashtag judgment. Understood. Um, <laughs> Understood. Understood. All right. Uh, last one. If we were to take a picture of you really happy and doing something you love, what would we see? Oh, I mean, it would definitely be with, with my family doing something. Like, I think we, you know, that's like the main thing that I do in my life outside of this job and, and doing these interviews. And so um, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, we living in San Francisco is really special. I mean, it's hard. It's hard to live here. To be a professor and live in San Francisco is, is not a easy um, kind of type of job. But it's it has so many incredible things that you can do in the city. And so, you know, like I mentioned, I'm like a beach person in that way. Like Northern California beaches are so beautiful. So we often like will go down to see a sunset and like hang out and like, you know, check out like local places. And and that that that's definitely kind of the best part of like my weekend typically. That's nice. Well, hey, Dr. Eric Prather, thank you so much for for joining us today. Thank you. Super fun. You wrote that, I'm quoting you here, we live in a society where we've glamorized short sleep and long work hours. We elevate productivity and devalue rest. And this is so true, right? This is so true, but it's um, it's often making us sick. It's often not good for us. And as you point out in your book, the, the ironic thing is that rest is what we most need to be more productive. And I'm really grateful for the reminder of that. Thank you. And folks, for listening, uh, Dr. Eric Prather's latest book is called The Sleep Prescription, Seven Days to Unlocking Your Best Rest. It's tiny, it's blue, and uh, I think it works, you guys. I've slept wonderfully this past week, even through my grumbling, even through my laughter of the things I was trying. But I um, I don't know. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a zealot and a convert, but I... I uh, had forgotten what it felt like to feel rested. So thank you. Thank you for um, this possibility. Um, guys, you can pick it up at an indie store near you. Give it a try. Let us know what you think. Better sleep is within your reach. Uh, for everyone listening, we're wishing you love and light wherever the day takes you. Be good to yourself. Be good to one another. And we'll see you again soon on this wild and precious journey. Wild Precious Life is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producers Gerardo Orlando and Michael D'Aloya. Producer Sarah Wilgrube and audio engineer Ian Douglas. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast.